Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh continues his series covering the book of Romans. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1 as Pastor Josh delivers his sermon titled, Eager to Preach the Gospel. Romans chapter 1, finishing up another paragraph today. We're going to read verses 8 through 15. We started this last Sunday, got about halfway through. We'll finish up this section today. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. We'll read this section and then we'll pray and ask for God's help. Romans 1, beginning in verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. Because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making requests, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Please bow with me. I need to ask God's help. Oh God, cry out for mercy. God, we're sinners all the time. Some days I feel it more than others. Uh, God, I'm feeling very unworthy, uh, Lord, to be preaching. God, these very wicked eyes are reading your holy word. This wicked mind that thinks wretched thoughts is about to engage with your truths. And God, you know how unclean my lips are. And I'm about to be charged with feeding, teaching, preaching. And God, all of us gathered in this room with wicked hearts, prideful, unrighteously angry, lusting, self-centered hearts. And here we're coming to meet with you, the living God. And Father, what justice demands is that we be sentenced forever but you are merciful. And in your grace, you've given your son. And for reasons we cannot understand, you've come to us, drawn us, turned us away from our rebellion, set us on a new course and a new life. We have forgiveness of our sins and a thousand gifts of your grace. God, we worship you now. We'll worship you forever. And we long for the day when these wicked hearts are transformed to be made holy and perfectly cleansed to where that's a thing of our past and we just worship you rightly. But until then, here we are. I ask God for help. I ask God that the worship we're striving to offer up to you today will be pleasing to you. That even though we're wrestling with the wickedness that we do Lord, the good that you've brought, the love that you've created, 
the faith, the joy, the worship that has begun will be increased right now. Please, God, give us hearts that right now submit to your will, rejoice in our salvation, and long, long hunger, O God, to be made holy, to be transformed, so that our lives will be the great offering. The effort that we give will please you. And God, we know that what happens in these moments right here as we worship, as we look at your word, are a pivotal part of that. So please, O God, Prepare praise for yourself. Work for the glory of your name. Give us eyes to see. Shed light on your truths. Continue this transformation you've begun. And Lord, have more mercy than you've already shown on us, the sinners. Please bless this time. We ask this through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. When the five American missionaries who were speared to death in 1956 while they were working to reach an unreached tribe in the Amazon. When that event occurred, suddenly everyone became interested in their work. Uh, Even National Geographic traveled down to South America to run stories, and around the world people began to hear about this work, and through their glorious martyrdom, God opened up a door of opportunity to the world. It's it's pretty safe to say that through their lives, thousands, thousands of believers have been inspired onto Christ. And one of those missionaries, Jim Elliott, his, his name we've mentioned in the past and quoted him. Jim Elliott was probably the most outgoing, the most charismatic, the most colorful and well known of the group. His now widow, went on to write several books describing her husband and these missionaries and their work, and God used her works as a way of inspiring believers and calling attention to the gospel. And one of those works that she published was his journal. And one of the cool things about having his journal is we get to kind of get insights into His thinking, his heart, what made him tick when he was alone and no one else was there and it was just him and God. By the way, a lot of his journal entries are written to God, beautiful prayers offered up to God and even letters later that were published. We get insight into how he thought, insight into his motives, what drove him, what made him tick. You know, when those five missionaries made that fateful trip into uh, the, the region of this Wadani tribe, they knew there was high probability they were not coming back. Their death didn't take them by surprise. They, they met for months and months in planning leading up to this trip. They had long, long conversations into the night with their wives and their young children explaining to them it's possible daddy won't come back, calling their their attention, their, their children's eyes to look to the glory that is to come, telling them that for the Christian death is not tragedy because of the hope that we have in Christ. They knew what was coming. They knew the high likelihood of their death. Why still go? What's the motives? 
Well, some of the beautiful things from the journals, we see some of it. For instance, here's an entry. You've heard this before. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He was driven by the joy of the coming rewards. Driven by the joy set before them, the glory of what is to come. That's not all. He was also driven by his love and his zeal for the gospel. Here's another quote uh, written to uh, uh, someone else. I pray the Lord might crown this year with his goodness in the coming one to give you a hallowed daredevil spirit in lifting the biting sword of truth, consuming you with a passion that is called by the cultured citizen of Christendom, fanaticism, but known to God as that saintly madness that led his son through bloody sweat and hot tears to agony on a rude cross and glory. And then one more that I'll read to you. We could just keep going with his quotes, by the way, um, such, filled with such goodness. But, but here's, here's one more that we see even some more insights. So we've saw he was driven by the joy that is to come. He was driven by his love and his passion for the gospel. But there's another quote here where he talks about his constraint that God had laid on him. He, would, he was asked before he left America, America, as some believers around him really tried to pressure him and ask him this question, why are you going overseas when there's so many people here who need the gospel? You ever heard that objection to missions? Well, I go, we got people here who need the gospel. That objection is absurd for a number of reasons. The first one is because our king calls us overseas. But he also said this, surely those who know the great passionate heart of Jehovah must deny their own loves to share in the expression of his. Consider the call from the throne above. Go ye, and from round about, come over and help us. And even the call from the damned souls below, send Lazarus to my brothers that they may not come to this place. Impelled then by these voices, I dare not stay home while Kichuas perish. So what if the well-fed church in the homeland needs stirring? They have the scriptures, Moses and the prophets, and a whole lot more. Their condemnation is written on their bank books and in the dust on their Bible covers. American believers have sold their lives to the service of mammon, and God has his rightful way of dealing with those who succumb to the spirit of Laodicea. Didn't mince words, did he? He was driven by the joy of what is to come. Driven by his love and passion for the gospel, for the God who saved him, but also for the constraint and the burden that he felt in his calling from God. Well, in a similar kind of way, friends, never, numerous places in the scriptures as the Holy Spirit inspired uh, Paul to write his letters, we get insights into his thinking, what made him tick. What drove? What were his motives? Why did he do what he did? Tied up three times and beaten with rod, tied up five times and last 39 times, once stoned, left at shipwreck, fought wild beasts, and eventually would come to be beheaded by the Romans. What drives that? A lot of motives. It's not just one, we're complicated creatures. We don't just have one motive at a time. We have a whole, a whole mixture of them. In the passage we've been walking through beginning last week, we see six different motives 
that come out in Paul's heart for why he wants to go and why he wants to come to this church at Rome. So last week, what we primarily looked at was we started off seeing his, his prayers for the Roman believers. But we also started to get into his motives as we see his, his longing to be used of God, his longing to be useful in reaching them, strengthening them. And we continue on today with talking about the obligation that God had laid on him, his obligation to reach the, the nations, the Gentiles, with the gospel. So if you're following along in kind of the outline we've laid out, today we're ready for point three, and that's what we'll spend all of our time on. Point three, Paul's obligation to the Gentiles. There'll be several sub-points underneath this if you're taking notes. I'll do my best to point those out. Here is the first one, letter A. In verse 13, Paul mentions numerous times that he's planned to come to them, but he had been providentially hindered. Paul does not want them to think that the reason he hasn't come to them is because he doesn't care. No, he wants them to know that he has desire to come to them, even though he's never met them. You can do that, by the way. As Christians, it's something that the gospel does. The gospel creates a love um, for others, believers around the world, even though we've never met them. That's possible. Um, I hope you have a care for the believers down in San Victor, Belize. I hope that you pray for them, even, even if you've not gotten to go and meet them. The gospel creates a love for your brother, even the brothers and sisters you've not met in Christ. Paul has a desire, he has a longing to care for these souls, even though he's never known them. It just wasn't God's timing for him to come yet, and it finally was God's timing in Acts 28. Well, here's the second one, letter B. Secondly, he says that one of the reasons that he wants to go is so that he can get some fruit among them. Look at verse 13 again. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I plan to come, often I plan to, come to you and have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. Now, I do believe that this is a point that God wants us to notice. Because in this paragraph, one paragraph, we're given six indications of Paul's motives. Six different ways. So I think that's kind of something God is emphasizing here. Maybe not the main point of the text, but we're seeing into his heart and what drives him. Um, walk through some of these references with me. In verse 9, we really focused on this one. He says he serves God in his spirit in the preaching of the gospel. We pointed out last week that out of worship, out of worship. In verse 11, he says that he longs to come to them so that he can serve them. He continues on and says, I want to come to you because I know that when I come, I'll be encouraged. That sounds a little selfish. We'll come back to that. In verse 13, he says he wants to come to them so that he can get fruit among them. In verse 14, he's going to say, I want to come because I'm under obligation to come to you. And then in verse 15, he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel. We made the point last Sunday that when he says that I serve God in my spirit, in the preaching of the gospel of the son, we made the point that that's the definition of sincerity. It's the definition of right motives that not just in some kind of external service, but down deep in his heart, in his soul, he wants to honor God, wants to worship by serving. But then when he says this, 
when he says some of this other stuff, does that make you question his sincerity? When he says, I want to go because I want to be encouraged. I want to go because I want to get fruit from among you. Does that make you question the sincerity? Well, I hope not. And we're going to kind of see how all of this comes together. And yes, it matters. Motives matter. Our God teaches us that it, it, uh, what he calls us to are not merely works, but works done for the right reasons. Motives matter. In the same way that if a young man brings one of my daughter's flowers, motives matter. There's a motive that makes me want to shake his hand. There's a motive that makes me want to shake his face with my fist, okay? Motives matter. And before our God, we are shown over and over again that our God, our works are not accepted. They are not regarded by God as good. If they come from intentions that are not worshipful, that are not honorable. So this whole concept of motives is all through the scriptures where we're shown right motives and wrong motives. And here we see this on display. We made the point that God has set Paul before us, not as a perfect example, but as a helpful one. Certain parts of his life helpful to imitate. So there are some things we want to see here. So first of all, let's make sure we understand what he means by this desire to get fruit. When he says, I want to come on you because I want to get some fruit. What does he mean by that? Well, Jesus in a number of places uses the illustration that you are like a fruit tree. Um, in John 15, the chapter that we as our church get our, we derive our church name from, um, he likens us to a grapevine. You've been planted by God for the purpose that you would bear fruit. John 15, Jesus says this, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Later on, he says, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Well, what is this fruit that Jesus is referring to? This is a combination of all of the, the good deeds, the thoughts, the worship, the sharing of the gospel, the progress made in holiness, the fighting of sin, the feeding of the poor, the caring for others, all, all of this, all of the good that comes out of our lives. God created you. God put you on this earth for the purpose that you would bear fruit. Why do you plant a grapevine? You plant it to get grapes. Why did God create you and I? There is something that he desires. He desires that our lives would bear fruit and glorify him. And he tells us, that the good works that come out of our lives are this fruit. There are also several places that refer to specifically when we participate in the work of the gospel. When a soul turns to Christ, that's fruit that's been harvested. And so there's kind of like a way, if you get to lead someone to Christ, that that's sort of like you have harvested grapes and you're offering them to God as worship. If you disciple a Christian, and that Christian makes progress in their faith, being strengthened in Christ. That's fruit that they have borne and they get rewards for this. But this is also fruit that you got to participate in. It's kind of like you get to gladly offer this up to God. God, I was, I was useful. <laughs> I wasn't worthless. I did something that mattered. My life counted. I've offered something here that you want. The bearing of fruit. And the other part of this is, we will be rewarded for all of the fruit that we bear 
and all of the fruit that we are helped by God to harvest and offer up to him. We receive rewards, honor, recognition, future glory, dependent on how we have labored, sacrificed, exerted effort, the weight of that effort, the good deeds, the number of good deeds, how hard the good deeds were, a thousand other parts of this. There's reward. Listen, every believer gets the same salvation. The thief on the cross who died, excuse me, who turned to Christ just minutes before he died, he's just as saved as John the Baptist is. But scripture shows that there is a weight of reward dependent on how we labor. Um, you're in Romans, flip to chapter two, verse five for a moment. There's a, there's a verse that just really, I, I find it very, very uh, visible. Look at verse five. Now this is speaking to those who reject Christ, but there's a metaphor here. Chapter two, verse five, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. That phrase there, storing up wrath. I just find that such a, a, a weighty statement that's made there. I imagine like a, a basin, a basin and uh, all of the um, uh, wickedness and such is, is stored up for this who rejects God, but for those who are in Christ, you might imagine that there is a record that God is keeping. And for those who have trusted in Christ, you are not saved by good deeds. You're saved by turning to Christ in faith, placing your faith in Jesus Christ, calling out to him, confessing your faith in him. God says you're made right with him in a moment, but the good deeds that we do are stored up. In the coming ages, God wants to reward his people in this. And so scripture shows us that all of the good deeds, all of the acts of obedience to him are going to result every ounce, every millisecond. Uh, Jesus even said in Mark 9 and some other places, a cup of cold water given in his name will not be forgotten on the day of judgment. He will not lose his reward, Jesus said. So every act Every act will be brought to judgment. Every good work, every piece of fruit, it is storing up for the people of God. And so what Paul is saying here is, I want it. I long for it. I want to please my God. I want him to, I want him to be happy with me. I want him to smile on me. I don't want to waste my life. I want my life to matter. I want it to count. I want when I get there. Yeah, I want the reward. I want to please him. And that produced in Paul such a fire that it led him. Friends, it led him to see the world differently. And if this truth gets in our bones, we will see all the world differently than we do. Christians throughout history who have gotten this truth sunk down in them. Many of them have had seasons where they were enduring persecution, even facing martyrdom, and some have said to their torturers, you are only serving me by increasing my reward in the kingdom. How freeing would that be? How freeing is the perspective that we can look at every single difficulty of life and see my God is using this to refine me and every millisecond that I endure in a way that honors God is leading up to joy. 
Friends, that's a life-changing perspective. But now let me, let me kind of ask this question here. We talked about the sincerity being demonstrated here, but when he says, I want to come to you so that I can get some fruit, does that make his motive selfish? Well, the short answer is no, because the Bible says so. But there have been numerous philosophers down through the ages, numerous Christians who have kind of had this idea that it's evil to work for the reward. It's evil to be motivated by the reward. Many have taught that the, the reason you should do the right thing is because it's the right thing. That's the highest motive. The only thing I know to say is apparently Jesus doesn't agree with you. He even told a parable. Remember the parable he told about don't seat yourself at the head of a table? When you come to a banquet, seat yourself in the lowest place. When you're going into the car and everybody's trying to fight for shotgun, take the back seat, he said. Take the, the lower place and allow yourself to be honored. And Jesus finishes with this, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus constantly used language like that to inspire us to see the reward that is to come and to be stirred by that. And he never tells us not to hate honor or not want it at all, but to wait for the honor that God will give us. Not to try to take it for ourselves now and have fleeting earthly honor, but to wait for the honor that comes from our Father who gives it to us rightly. And friends, let's be real. If men of the earth, can feel such burning ambition for riches and earthly glory, then how much more ought we to feel it? How much more ought believers to have an ambition that, that leads us to a fire in our bones longing for the great reward? You know, whenever you study the, the stories of great athletes, their lives are usually case studies in determination, discipline, a fire that led them to, to practice to insane amounts. Tiger Woods was hitting golf balls for two hours a day at the age of four. Pistol Pete Maravich used to practice basketball at least and hard 10 hours a day, seven days a week. Christian, we have a coming inheritance that's going to make Tiger Woods' trophies, glories, and accolades look like winning kindergarten dodgeball. Okay, God has an inheritance stored up for us. There is something that is so good that we're told that those who are beheaded for Christ are going to say it was worth it. We have a joy set before us. Paul felt it. There is nothing you will ever spend for the gospel that will ever be loss. Something else Jim Elliott said, I never sacrificed anything. And what he meant by that in the context was the dude gave up a lot, left comfort to go to the jungle, brought his family to the sweaty, sweltering, primitive kind of life of the jungle, eventually gave his life. He said, I gave up nothing because whatever we give is richly rewarded by our God. And I want to say this as well. When we catch this, this truth, this leads us to serve with joy. You know, a stingy heart oftentimes comes from self-pity. Seeing the reward, seeing the joy that is to come frees us up in a new kind of way. Frees us up to serve with gladness. Frees us up to sacrifice and not feel sorry for ourselves. 
frees us up to be generous. And, and, and I say this to be not pander, but encouraging. One of the reasons that we have seen a great deal of fruit here is because there has been a very sacrificial spirit here from the very beginning, from the very early days. I mean, it is a regular thing here that I'm encouraged by. Folks laboring lots and lots of hours to ministries they're not paid for. Folks footing bills for things they don't have to. Why do they do it? For the joy set before them. For the service of the body of Christ. Have you ever seen those scenarios where, you know, somebody picks up a bag of ice and they're making sure the treasurer's cutting them a check for that $1.50 tonight? Okay? That's a stingy kind of heart. The gospel frees us up to a generosity. The gospel frees us up to a joy, a gladness in serving, a gladness to sacrifice and to give and to be excited about the joy that is to come. When Paul says here, I want to come among you because I'm, I'm hungry for the fruit. I, I, I want the reward that is to come. That's not selfish. Listen to me. We are honoring God by honoring and valuing the glory that comes from him rather than what we take for ourselves. Looking to the reward of the kingdom expresses our faith in what he gives. Well, here's, here's letter C. Here's another statement that might raise questions in your mind about the motives, the sincerity. Paul explains that he had a duty to reach the Gentiles. So Romans 1, look at verse 14. He says here, I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. It's an interesting statement. Paul says he's doing this because he is under obligation. Well, let me, let me lay it on a little heavier because actually... The original language is even a little, little bit clearer. Here's a little bit more of a, a literal rendering of the text. Both to Greeks and to barbarians, to wise and to foolish, a debtor I am. That's the word here. I am a debtor. That's the word that King James, by the way, translates this, renders it. He says, I am a debtor to the Gentiles. I am an ower to the Gentiles. This word that the New American Standard renders as obligation, this same place in some other passages in the New Testament, same word is translated as owed, debt, or even due. If you want to look at Matthew 18, not now, 28 to 34, sometime three times this word is used in that passage, and it's rendered as owed, debt, or due. So there's, there's no question here. This is pretty strong language that Paul is using saying, I want to come among you because I have a debt that I must pay. So which is it? Does Paul want to come preach the gospel or does he have to come preach the gospel? If we get this, we will get the secret that George Herbert said will make all drudgery divine. There's a, there's a poem you need to read sometime called The Elixir by George Herbert. And he says that we can take all menial parts of life, even as simple things as sweeping your floors, and turn them into gold. How does drudgery become divine? Here's how it is. Jesus did address the Pharisees and their tendency to do religious deeds out of mere obligation. They would see these, um, these works as an external duty, check the box, and that's what legalism is. Legalism thinks of obedience to God always in terms of the external 
always the checking of boxes, removing guilt, making sure I look good, making sure I feel good, rather than serving in the soul. So here is the principle. The only way that obligation becomes evil is when it is missing love and desire and delight. There's kind of this trend in Christianity that floats through every once in a while that wants to call every time people talk about obligation, command, and duty, they want to be like, oh, that, that's legalism. Legalism. Do not murder. Legalism. Okay, that's absurd. That's absurd. Okay, the only way that obligation becomes evil is when it is missing the inner spirit. It's missing the love, the delight, the desire that is there, okay? You have an obligation not to cheat on your spouse. Can you do that out of love and desire? Okay, both can be together. As husbands, we have dozens of obligations to our wives, including romancing them. I happen to enjoy that very much. We can engage in obligations, but in a way that is with delight and joy. And listen to me, when have to and want to come together, That's the secret for honoring God, worshiping God through obedience to his commands. When have to and want to come together, when there is delight and joy in obedience to God, that is honoring him. So we do have obligation, friends. We are still under a law, the law of Christ in this new covenant, but it is not a burdensome law, scripture says. Why? Because his commandments are delight. So coming back now, what is this debt? He says he's a debtor, so, so what does he owe? Summing it up, he has this owing because of God's calling on his life. We've mentioned several times already that God had called Paul to be the apostle to the Gentiles, the chief missionary to the nations. And this calling, this constraint Other places, he'll call it a stewardship entrusted to him by God that he's going to answer for. This constraint meant that he had a command of God to go and bring the gospel. And here is Rome, the most important city in the Roman Empire. They need discipling. He says, I feel the burden. I must go. God wants me to go. Therefore, I have something that I owe to you. Now, Speaking of this for a second here in verse 13, getting a little bit more specific, he mentions that he wants to come to them like he goes to the rest of the Gentiles. Um, I believe next Sunday as we come to verses 16 and 17, we'll spend a little bit more time kind of looking at the full story of the Gentiles and how the Jewish people came about and some things like this. But for now, for this week, short version, the Gentiles is a name that refers to all of the non-Jewish peoples of the earth all of the nations of the earth. They were um, not by blood a part of the covenant that God made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Even this book will teach us that there is a way by faith we can be made a part of that covenant, but not by blood, not born into it. But more on that to come. But then in verse 15, he starts to get more specific. Do you see that part there where he talks about Greeks and barbarians, the wise and the foolish? There were several different groups within the Roman Empire. And the Greeks were those who had been influenced by the highly esteemed Greek culture. So if you remember when Alexander the Great came in and um, uh, gained control over this whole region, 
That was, the, that was the kingdom right before the Roman, uh, the Roman Empire. They ruled for around three centuries there or such. When Alexander the Great came in, he didn't just want to rule the world. He didn't just want to conquer. He believed that the Greek culture, with its language, its philosophy, music, art, customs, all these things, they spoke often that they believed their culture was handed down from the gods, that it was divine. They didn't just want to rule. They wanted all the world to speak the Greek language and be influenced by the Greek culture. And they were pretty successful. Long after the Greek empire fell, that Greek culture persisted, including the Greek language. And that's why our New Testament is written in the Greek language. That became the trade language. That became the common language that everyone knew. But what remained then is that those who were sort of um, the elitist, the highly educated, the sophisticated ones, they spoke of themselves as the Greeks. And the rest, the peons of the other people groups, they are the barbarians. The Greeks would make fun of the languages of other peoples. They called it, they, they made fun of it as like a primitive gibberish. And they said, it sounds like you're saying bar, bar, bar. And so those people who spoke the bar, bar language became known as barbarians. And so this was a derogatory kind of term that the Greeks used for the, the lesser peoples all around us. So here's what Paul says. God has called me to reach the elite and the uneducated. God has called me to reach those who are highly educated, the sophisticated, the philosophers, like in Acts 6 or 17, whenever he preaches at the Areopagus to the philosophers, he said, I'm called to preach to them, but I'm also called to go to the tribal peoples on the islands like Malta, where he would go and such. God has called me to reach all of them, the wise and the foolish. He says, I have a constraint on my life. I have a calling, a burden, a debtorship, a debt. There is something that I owe to the nations. Now, here's the question, Christian. You knew it was coming. You know what I'm going to ask. This debtorship, was it only for Paul? Or is it only for the, the preachers, the missionaries? You know, those people who are called to do that kind of thing. Well, Actually, it is only for the called. Only, just, no, so just rest assured, only the people who are called are the ones who have a debtorship. But before you let yourself off the hook, jump back to chapter 1, verse 5. Remember when we studied through this? Speaking of Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also, Christian, are the called of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you the question. Have you received the grace of the forgiveness of sins, of salvation? Then you've also received something else. You have also received the ministry of apostleship. You're not an apostle, but you're called to a ministry. You're called to a ministry of being sent out. You don't have the same ministry as Paul, but you have a similar one. The entire church has been put under obligation to make the gospel known. It's our mission. It's our duty. Listen to me. It's something that we owe. We owe God obedience to the Great Commission. And we owe the nations. 
Friend, it's the same kind of way if you're walking down the street and you see a house beginning to catch fire and children playing upstairs, you got a burden to do something. It's not okay to just turn the other way and keep walking on by. To do nothing is to let people perish when you could have warned them. We Christians hold the remedy to the spiritual cancer that every soul has. We have the medicine and the only medicine that works for the mortal illness that every soul has. We have the lifeline for every drowning soul. There's something that we owe. We owe God obedience and we owe our neighbors, our family, and the nations the message of the gospel. Listen to me, friends. There's a way that we can sometimes as Christians sit here in our comfortable seats with this nice air conditioning, think of the lost around the world and think, you know, I hate it, but I got my life. God says we have a debtorship to the nations. They're our responsibility. The unreached tribes that are still left in the Amazon, that's you and I. We have an obligation to go. Now, I understand, here's all the ways that we can justify our minds. We can think these things like, well, I can't reach everybody. Sometimes we use that as an excuse to do nothing. There are a lot of starving children in the world. I can't feed them all. You can feed some. We cannot reach every soul with the gospel, but we are called to use our lives to reach. And we're going to stand before God and we're going to answer for how we used this life. I love the way that Paul ends this section in verse 15. I am eager to preach the gospel. Christian, is that what's in your heart? Would to God that we were. Or maybe, I mean, maybe you feel what I feel. Like there's an eagerness, but it's not what I want it to be. It's not the fire I want to be there. You know, I was thinking as I was reading through those quotes by Jim Elliott, boy, you want to you feel about that big, read through those journals. Whenever you're by yourself, and let's be honest, in the midst of a very spiritually weak environment, a culture around us that is very spiritually weak, you can feel pretty strong. Spend some time with some spiritual giants and we'll, send, we'll see a little bit more perspective. I spend time reading Jim Elliott and I think I've never desired anything like that. I've never longed for souls like that. I've never loved the gospel like that. Oh, Christian, would that we had half of Jim Elliot's zeal or a quarter of Paul's. Would that we felt the raging desire. Would that we could see this world for what it really is. Would that we could look at our houses and see it from the eternal perspective. A stupid thing's going to be a pile of ash one day. Glad I got a roof over my head, but I will not live for it. Would that we could look at all of our hobbies, all of our ambitions, the direction of our life and see it from the eternal perspective. Yes, God gives the grace of pleasures and enjoyment, but I will not spend my life on it. There are souls perishing. There are nations that need the gospel. Jesus says this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a testimony to all the nations and then the end would come. Oh, I wish I longed for the coming of Christ enough to do more. Paul felt it. And God holds him before us, not as a perfect example, but a helpful one. Christian, is your heart 
eager for the gospel? Do you love the gospel? Do you love the Savior who shed his blood for you? Do you love the Father who set his love on you out of gratitude? Let us serve him and let us pray that our eagerness grows. Let's live lives that show our eagerness and our love for the gospel. And I don't know your hearts. Have you embraced the gospel? Have you believed the message of salvation? Or do you keep hearing it and keep shunning it? If you haven't, Romans 2.5 warns you as well as a hundred other verses of the Bible. You might keep telling yourself, I'm sure in the end I'll be fine. But Romans 2.5 that we just read a bit ago says, Your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. You need the forgiveness of sins. You need this thing that God calls salvation and it is only in Christ. You have rebelled against the living God. Your sins are bearing witness against you even right now. And there is coming the day you stand before God and it's not just all going to be okay because he is holy. And if you reject this way of forgiveness that he offers... There really is wrath to come. God doesn't say that to be mean. He calls out to you in love and tells you, come to me and be saved. But you must turn from your sins and embrace Jesus Christ by faith. Call out to him and ask him to save you. Let me close this in prayer and then we'll be dismissed. Oh, our Father, God, please take... Take whatever has been said here that's true and right, and God, please cause it to bear fruit in all of us. I, I just pray, God, there not be one soul here, one soul that's unaffected. Please don't let anyone be hardened. Please don't let anyone ignore your truths, O oh God. Whatever I've spoken that is not helpful, not true, cause it to be forgotten, O oh God. Father, please, I pray, draw all of us to yourself, your sons and your daughters. God, I just pray that this next week we will be a people that share the gospel, live the gospel, live lives worthy of the gospel and grow in our zeal for it. And I pray God for any in this room that has not yet responded to you, not yet turned to you. God, I pray today will be the day. Please bring them to you. Our Father, we love you and we thank you. We pray these things through the name of Christ. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's sermon titled, Eager to Preach the Gospel. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.